Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. At The Resident, all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with luxurious British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Holyrood Sources. Holyrood Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. The podcast starts now. It's time now to listen to the people of Scotland, to do them justice by the quality of our debate, the clarity of our decision-making and the integrity of our actions. The responsibility of leadership is not a responsibility that I take lightly. Scotland's First Minister and this Scottish Parliament must earn the confidence of the people of Scotland. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We're recording today on Tuesday the 6th of June. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for all of your emails over the past week as well. We'll get to some of those throughout the episode today. Uh, thanks for keeping in touch. Make sure you follow the podcast and you can subscribe to it as well. If you have a little look at the top of your feed, there's an option there if you're listening on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and that means you get not a single advert. Uh, have a little look at that. Read the info, see if you want to do that and support the podcast that way. That'd be great. Uh, thanks for being there. Welcome, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to the First Minister, Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And also with us, Andy McKeever, who's Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. And might I say, Callum, I quite like the adverts because I like your voiceovers on the residents' reviews for the hotel. They're Thank quite you. funny, actually. Much funnier than anything you hear in the podcast. So <laughs> I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the adverts. Well, that's fine. You won't be paying four ninety nine to support the podcast. So thanks very much for that, Andy. That's really, really <laughs> greatly appreciated. <laughs> uh, right. I want to say hello at this point to Jack McConnell, Lord McConnell, indeed, former First Minister of Scotland. Jack, good morning to you. Good morning, and my uh, my payment of four ninety nine depends entirely on the course of the next half hour or so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good to know that it's conditional. Uh, it's great to have <laughs> great to have Jack with us. Good morning <laughs> on the podcast this week. Uh, lots to talk about, um, and actually, I want to start with this email from Michelle. Hi, lads. Catching up on last week's podcast. Another great episode, by the way. Uh, Michelle's learned the trick to getting an email read out. Following on from Jill's email, Jill's made a bit of a name for herself, it has to be said, after that great email on energy, energy transition, etc. Uh, Michelle says you should definitely have a whole podcast with energy experts dedicated to the just transition to renewable energy. It's the single most important issue facing Scotland, the rest of the UK and the planet, says Michelle. So uh, there's a lot of Is that Michelle's way of saying that she didn't hear from energy experts last <laughs> week when Jeff and I were talking about it? <laughs> there's a subtle implication there. Isn't there? 
uh, I like Michelle. I like the idea. I like the idea. I have to say. So I think we might well do. Uh, do yeah, that I, don't I don't know if I like Michelle. I'm going to reserve my job. I don't know about that. Uh, we'll assemble some uh, actual experts for you, Michelle. Great shout. Uh, also, Jill has been back in touch, uh, saying it was great to hear Jeff and Andy's thoughts on this. So there you are, Andy. You can put that in the ego bank if you want. Well done. Yes, it's, banked. Thank it's you. one of the most important sectors for Scotland, and I do think it's being let down by poor policy at a UK level. And Jill goes on to suggest some experts that we could add into a future episode. And in fact, we're going to start there today, uh, pretty much where we left off, because uh, a new um, sort of direction, I suppose, for for Labour, according to Anna Sarwar. Let me read you this from The Times. Uh, Anna Sarwar has insisted there is no suggestion that Labour will turn off the taps in the North Sea, despite the party planning to ban new oil and gas extraction. The Scottish Labour leader, of course, who you may have heard from on this podcast a few weeks ago, you can scroll back in your feed to listen to that, has been trying to reframe this discussion about the party's green energy plan, um, which would include rejecting licences for controversial projects, and the Times highlights Campbell and Rose Bankfield as examples. Um, we were hearing from you guys last week on sort of real criticism, and actually criticism from across the board on Labour's uh, plans for the North Sea. Um, Andy, has Anna Sarwar, what is this? Is he is he digging Labour out? I'm trying to understand the strategy here, I suppose. Um, I... The, the two positions are in reality probably closer together than we are presenting them as being. I think as much as Starmer last week was a misstep, it may also have been a misspeak. I think the key thing when uh, Keir Starmer comes up, I think he's coming up, isn't he, to uh, talk about this and launch it. Yeah. I think the key thing when he does that is to ensure that Keir Starmer and Anas Sarwar are clear about the grey area, because the grey area that everybody's talking around here is new development. That's that's the thing that neither of these statements, I think, have given clarity on. It's new development. It's not existing development. And I think that they have to be held to account when they come up here so that they can tell people very clearly and plainly what it is they're actually saying. Um, there's no question that what Anas Sarwar has said does appear to be a softening, a clarification, whatever you might want to call it, of what Keir Starmer had said last week. But I do think we need detail here. We're talking about, I think they mentioned the 2050s today, um, but I think there is a requirement for detail about whether we continue to explore what we know is there or whether the taps are off when it comes to new development. That's the very critical uh, nuance here that needs to be understood. Jeff, he said Labour would, quote, work in partnership with the industry to deliver the green transition and, quote, deliver something transformative within a decade. Yeah, I mean, it's really important that a few items that are overlooked in this debate um, that we must explore. Uh, firstly, I get quite frustrated with all politicians that talk about renewables and oil and gas as if they're you know hugely distant sectors uh, they are part of the same industry and, and one is very much reliant on the other now i spent yesterday afternoon with four or five uh, supply chain companies and it's important to remember in the northeast of scotland alone there is a thousand energy supply chain companies and that is the largest concentration of supply chain companies uh, anywhere in the uk and they're telling me look we want to you know, transition towards new energies. But the reality is that the technologies and the jobs associated with those technologies, they're not available at scale just now. We're, we're probably looking at mid-2030s, early 2040s until uh, Scotland is on stream, and that's just the first developments of that. Uh, there are a lot of green hydrogen projects right now, really exciting, uh, that are still in development. And of course, we all know about carbon capture, Acorn at St Fergus, which is still needing support from the Scottish and UK governments. But they're saying we are, our profit levels just now are made from the subcontracts from oil and gas. You know, some of these guys are relying on, this, on big oil, on Shell, on BP, on Equinor for their contracts, that high volume manufacturing piece. Now, Scotland is not blessed with a, a wide range of world class sectors. Energy is one of them. We must not cut off our nose to spite our face. There has to be a managed transition. So until we have these technologies at scale so they can be commercialised and we can create jobs and export this stuff, which we've done a great job of the last 50 years of doing, uh, we cannot put ourselves in a position of relying on more carbon-heavy and costly imports. That wouldn't be economically or environmentally prudent, as I said last week. So I do think it's important 
when Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar come up to do this uh, energy day uh, and announce this, that they reflect on that and exactly what Andy's saying, put it into the right appropriate context. We need to incentivise the sector because the other point that is also overlooked is that where do the profits come for these investments? They're largely coming from oil and gas companies. Shell, BP, two, uh, won the successful bids, some of the successful bids in Scotland. They're investing in renewables. We've got to be, uh, get real here and reflect that in our approach to policy. I think just, I'd be really interested to get, obviously to get Jack's views on yeah. this, but just before we, just before we do that, I think that is a really, this is a time for grown-ups in this debate, right? This is not a time for flag waivers and marchers, this is a time for grown-ups here, because the reality is that if you believe in a very rapid acceleration to net zero, which I do and Jeff does and a lot of people do, if you believe in that, you have to believe in indigenous hydrocarbons. You have to, because it is only the profits of yep. the hydrocarbon industry in Scotland which will deliver us to net zero quickly. Now, I understand that's unpalatable for a lot of people. I understand that's difficult to hear, but we're not in an era anymore where you can just say what you think needs to be heard, what you think people want to hear. You need to say what you think, what you think people need to hear, not what they want to hear. And that is what people need to hear. If we want to go to net zero, we have to exploit hydrocarbons for the moment. We just have to. Well, let's bring in Jack McConnell, who was First Minister of Scotland and, of course, leader of the Labour Party in Scotland. Um, Jack, it's been, a, it's been a tricky couple of weeks for Labour since this North Sea, I don't know, half announcement from Keir Starmer. And here's Anna Sarwar now sort of suggesting that actually it's maybe slightly different to how it was portrayed. What's your take on, on, on what, what we've witnessed in the last couple of weeks from the Labour Party? Um, I think it's maybe been a bit of a candid briefing for a Sunday newspaper two weeks ago that's that's kicked all this off. Um, and the, as the clarifications happen, uh, then, you know, we might see the detail of a strategy that might actually uh, work more successfully in practice. I, I, uh, this is going to be a very boring podcast if I agree with Andy and uh, and Jeff all the way along the line. I, I, you know, I think I think Jeff's point about a managed transition is 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 fundamental here. You need two things for that. First of all, you need to have a clarity of your vision, and then secondly, you have to then invest in the skills uh, transfers and developments that are needed. There are there's already quite a big shift happening. People moving. Um, away from working in the North Sea and working on North Sea-related supply chain uh, activity into renewables. Um, you know, if you speak to SSE, for example, they will tell you that they've got engineers now working um, on the, in, uh, in, in renewables who used to work in the North Sea. And so there is a, there's a movement happening. Um, but for that to happen as dramatically and successfully as everybody wants, then you need to have the clarity of the long-term vision. And if I think back to 2002, for example, when we set out the first uh, renewable generation targets in Scotland shortly after I became first minister, uh, we uh, at the time people said they were ridiculously overambitious and that you know that we hadn't really thought this through, and I was I was just posturing. But actually, by setting out the target, that then allowed industry to invest um, and colleges and others to start thinking about the courses they had to run. Um, and and then then allowed um, Jeff's old bosses to continue that process and develop those targets um, to an even more ambitious level after 2007. So what you've seen in Scotland over 20 years started off with setting out a target and then sticking to it, not being diverted from it. And I think the big problem that we've had in energy policy in the UK now for the best part of 20 years uh, is a, a lack of absolute clarity. Uh, people saying one thing at world summits and doing a different thing at home. And that is no way to try and get investment from industry and no way to try and retrain or train the next generation of, of, of engineers and others working in the, uh, either in the industry or in the supply chain. The clarity of purpose and vision is so important from both our governments, Scotland and the UK. And there's going to have to be a degree of collaboration here um, because we all know that there are interwoven policies between devolved and reserved governance in terms of grid connections, in terms of planning. Uh, but one of my big fears about all this, and, and, and I'm, you know, I call in from, from Aberdeen, this place is a hive of activity. There's a lot going on just now in terms of energy transition, and it is really exciting. But we're also very cognizant of the fact 
that our international competitors are much better organised in terms of the port infrastructure, which is going to be so vital, particularly for floating offshore wind. Uh, and we really need to get a grip of this. Uh, and there has to be some pretty hard decisions taken in terms of substantial infrastructure investment to upgrade our ports, but also that grid capacity and interconnectors. Uh, and there will be some difficult decisions that have to be that impact some communities. But if we are to truly remain and retain our status as global leaders in energy, we're going to have to take these decisions pretty soon. And as you rightly say, not just for the next three, four, five years, but this is a, a 20, 30, 40 year plan that we need to have in place. And we need to have it in place very, very soon. Yep. Um, Jack, a cynic might say that Anna Sarwar is having to clean up a mess that's been made by the Labour leader, um, who's, you know, the Westminster Labour leader, if I can put it like that, for the for the purpose of this argument. And he's having to wade in now because it's, it's affected Scotland and it's generated buzz in Scotland. Is that is that a fair analysis? And is that is that actually the reality here? Well, as I said, I think it's possibly that there was a bit of a... Um uh, a cack-handed uh, uh, Sunday briefing, but at the That's same time, from, from the Westminster Labour Party, possibly, you possibly it could have come from anywhere. Um, you know, it could have come further down the chain. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I also think that it's important to remember that sometimes, in order to get a policy um, breaking through in the public mind, you have to be a little bit controversial and provoke the debate. Um, and if you know, if the if the Labour Party had announced 10 days ago that they were going to have a nice balanced energy per policy that was going to go towards net zero by 2050. Mm. And Keir was coming to Scotland to make a big speech about it. Would any of you guys turn up? It's <laughs> a fair point. But, well, but the press conference will be full now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's also, um, seems to me, a good change of approach. And I've noticed Jeremy Hunt did this recently as well as Keir, so I'm not, I'm not making a party political point. But I've been calling for a long, long time for UK ministers to come and make um, more substantial visits to Scotland where they actually debate and discuss uh, policy. For far too long, it was a case of UK uh, leaders and ministers and all parties coming to Scotland, waving a flag around and going back uh, home again. Um, but I, I, I like the idea that you know Jeremy Hunt came to Edinburgh to make an announcement about financial services. I like the fact that Keir is going to come to Scotland, it appears, um, to make a big announcement on energy policy. That is exactly what they should be doing, engaging properly with Scotland, rather than just seeing it as someone to visit occasionally for campaign purposes. Mm -hmm. Is there any bit of you when you're first minister, though, that would be that would begrudge that that you know you kind of you kind of look at you kind of look at the other parties riding in to make a big announcement and then riding off into the sunset again? Well, it depended. It always depended on the visit. I, I had sort of three kinds of visits, I suppose, uh, when I was Scottish Labour Party leader. Um, there were those who came uh, to contradict. I remember a famous visit by uh, a, a guy called Tony McNulty, who was a junior minister in the Home Office, who was sent up to uh, to basically completely contradict what me and Malcolm Chisholm were saying on uh, fresh talent and immigration and uh, and treating asylum seekers well in Scotland. Um, and uh, that didn't go well for him. Malcolm slapped him down with my authority. Um, <laughs> I, we had others who would come and just do a quick, uh, a quick flag-waving visit and get, basically get ignored. But there were others who came and did it properly. David Blunkett, uh, for example, on fresh talent. And when we announced the fresh talent initiative, David Blunkett came to Scotland and talked about the changing nature of the UK, the fact that we were now, uh, we had these devolved governments in different parts of the UK and that there was no longer a one-size-fits-all policy at the Home Office. And I remember that visit as being the way that somebody should interact with Scotland. So I had all three and I had them regularly, um, but uh, we had to handle them in different ways. Yeah, Yeah, you just, you mentioned uh, fresh talent um, there, uh, Jack. I was something I was really keen to, to ask you about and for the benefit of our, our listeners who might be uh, a bit younger, obviously this was a, a policy that you led in conjunction with the Home Office to encourage uh, graduates, uh, international graduates, to stay and work in Scotland uh, immediately after. And I thought it was a really, really good piece of policy, which took uh, a lot of effort, I'm sure, which I'll let you allude on, not me. But, but I suppose my question is this. The next uh, general election is going to be probably defined by the economy. Um, given the, the state of the cost of living crisis. But 
quickly below that, I think, is this issue of immigration and, and Rishi Sunak keep talking about getting stopping the boats and all the rest of it. But in Scotland, we do have different needs uh, and we still have, and we we're talking about engineers earlier on, that's a particular um, gap that we have if we're really to accelerate new energies, for example. We need to attract new talent here. Do you think it would be wise for uh, the Scottish Government or indeed the Labour Party in their manifesto, perhaps a bit of differentiation from Anna Sarwar, to call for uh, such an initiative based on what, what we now have as the immigration point system, but a bit of nuance to that for Scotland to try and adopt a different approach and encourage people to, to, to stay, live and work in Scotland? Well, you know, what we were talking about in relation to energy a minute ago um, and the lack of class... The lack of consistency between what's said and what is actually achieved, um, you know, you can multiply a hundred by a hundred when it comes to immigration policy in the UK. You know, we've consistently been told over recent years that you can't have a more nuanced, smarter immigration policy because it's all about being tough and getting the numbers down. And then, of course, the numbers just keep going up. Um, so it's a bit of a joke, um, to be honest. And it's time for some adult thinking on this. Um, when we started, well, maybe I should just explain what the Fresh Talent Programme was. Mm. Uh, back in, um, in 2002, uh, the Registrar General for Scotland reported that he thought that uh, Scotland's population might drop below 5 million by 2009. Um, and I had just become First Minister. For me, the figure of 5 million population in Scotland was a big red line. It was, one, it was something that would have a psychological impact on the country as well as... Uh, uh, have an impact on our economy and, uh, and and in so many other ways. Um, and we started looking at what the potential solutions were. And one of them was to make sure that the incredible overseas students who come to, international students who come to Scotland to study uh, could stay a bit longer. I got representations from, amongst others, Tim O'Shea at Edinburgh University, the principal at that time, to say this was a, a big win-win for us if we could pull it off. And we spent a year or so negotiating. We set out the vision. I put it in the manifesto. People told me not to in 2003 because it would be too controversial. We did it, won the election, and uh, and then we filled out the detail. We went to work at the Home Office, and over a year, we worked out the detail of a two-year visa for anybody who studied in Scotland to stay on afterwards and settle with a family, maybe get a job, get their kids into school and see if they liked living here and what they wanted to stay. Um, and it did help turn around that population decline, and I think, you know, Scotland's population has been pretty solid there. Uh, uh, pretty solid ever since, but it also helped our economy. And the key things about that were, first of all, we thought it through in advance. We didn't announce it publicly until it was ready. Secondly, we negotiated it positively with the Home Office, and it meant that, and it was particularly David Blunkett, I uh, spoke to him about this the other day, actually. David Blunkett uh, and I had a good relationship, and we worked it out in detail and managed to persuade others to go with it. And then thirdly, we thought about how we would implement it. Well, this is... <laughs> this is this is a good. A few people could learn from this in Scottish <laughs> government today. We thought about how we would implement it. We we engaged with. I remember, for example, meeting um, Lithuanians and Poles in Lanarkshire and in Inverness to talk about how they might welcome people who came and be part of the infrastructure of this. We spoke to the school uh, managers across the Scottish education authorities about how to manage this into the schools. We spoke to housing. Um, you know, we, we, we thought about how it would actually work in practice. Um, and then we implemented it. And I think that's a big lesson that's needed for today. But yes, I would agree, we need more regionalisation of immigration policy across the UK, and that includes uh, for Scotland. Um, we need more targeted uh, incentives for people to come and live and work in certain areas, uh, not just in Scotland. And the one-size-fits-all immigration policy is not working. Uh, and I'm quite happy for people to be hard on this topic because they're struggling locally in some parts of the country. But other parts of the UK, including in Scotland, there's a need for, the, for, for more talent. Um, and uh, any sensible UK government should be open to that, in my view. I mean, I think that so obviously when you did that, Jack, it was <coughs> Labour North and South of the Border. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is going to, we're entering a potentially quite interesting phase here because actually politics for over a decade now has been dominated by the SNP and the Tories being in power north and south of the border with Labour not really factoring anything in here. Now, the way that, as I know to my cost, the way the Tory party works is simply that the, the DNA of the Tory party would not allow separation and immigration policy north and south of the border. It just wouldn't happen. 
Um, there are some Scottish Tories, uh, including Adam Tompkins, actually, who was on the podcast a while ago, who had talked before about some sort of devolution of parts of immigration, um, but I, I, I never saw it really going anywhere. The curious thing for me is Labour are not talking about it as much as I thought they would. They're not really talking about it much at all. Um, I suspect it's got something to do with Brexit and Keir Starmer having to be very, very careful about the messages that get given to the uh, Red Wall in the north of England. I suspect there's something to do with that. But it appears to me to be an absolute open goal for Anas Sarwar and Keir Starmer to get together and say, our team, north and south of the border, after 2026, this is the team that can really deliver on Scotland's demographic issues because we will work together, we both have the same aim, we both want the same thing. As I say, I suspect it's Brexit that's holding that message back at the moment, at least until after the general election, when maybe Sir Keir Starmer thinks he might be able to say, be a little bit more fluid on that issue than he maybe can before. But it's an open goal for me, which I think is currently being missed. Mm -hmm. You could be right about the caution in advance, uh, in, in, in advance of an election. I think one of the things that you have to do with an issue like this is build up, um, uh, build up the debate in advance. Uh, you know, I think sometimes to take on an issue without any preparation is what gets you in all sorts of trouble. Um, but by the time we announced this in 2003, 2004, you know, there was real pressure from the universities, from businesses. It had come up in, in Q&A sessions I'd done with Chambers of Commerce around Scotland. So when I went, I, I remember go, going to speak to the editor of The Sun at the time in Scotland because obviously the media reaction to a positive immigration story is is a bit unpredictable. Um, and I went to see the editor of The Sun and said, look, you know, I know that you as a newspaper are hostile to immigration and, you know, that you take a, you take a, a very strong stance on, even on, on refugees and so on. But, you know, here is the evidence. Here, here's what we've been told about the universities being competitive internationally. Here's what we've been told about businesses looking for um, uh, new people. Here is what we believe it would be good for the Scottish economy in terms of diversity, entrepreneurship, um, or job creation that would result from people coming in. Here are the examples internationally. We had examples from other places, particularly in the United certain states in the United States um, and Canada. And and actually, on the day that we launched it, the Sun newspaper in Scotland ran a story which was "Our country needs you." Front page, uh, where there's the Sun on this exactly the same day. The Sun in uh, in 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 London ran a story about an asylum seeker uh, breaking the rules, um, and it was it was such a comparison. But it was all about the preparation and persuasion. And I think if you can if you can work up the case from business, from education, um, with a bit of vision for the country, then you can persuade even cautious politicians to take a, a risk and go with something. So, I mean, I would, I, I would take that sort of strategic approach. I don't think you're going to change what Keir Starmer says about immigration before a general election. But if in Scotland we start to build up the momentum for this again, then I think, you know, we could then perhaps speak to a government that's a bit more reasonable in these things maybe after that election. Mm. You've mentioned a few, um, I suppose, less than subtle pointers to the current Scottish government, Jack, uh, in terms of your experience of delivering that you've just outlined for us. Is there anything in... The, the real struggle for Hamza Youssef, I suppose, is something that we've talked on the podcast about before, is the, the situation that he inherited as mm. First Minister was, frankly, less than ideal. He had challenges coming at him from all sides, and these first couple of months have been pretty sticky for him, I think that's fair to say. Do you have, I don't know, do you have sympathy for him? Can you kind of, can you, can you see how it might be really difficult to, to pick up where Nicola Sturgeon left off? I've spent 20 years thinking that the, 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 the way that I took over as First Minister in 2001 was was very tough. Mm. Um, you know, after the first 18 months, which had been a bit controversial in a lot of areas and maybe, you know, a little bit ill-prepared, um, then Donald dying, um, then uh, Henry taking over, having a very difficult year, um, and then eventually resigning after what was a pretty minor scandal, but one that he was finding difficulty with. Um, and I then come in with 18 months before an election in November 2001. And I've always felt a bit sorry for myself over that. <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I'm looking at what's happened to uh, to the SNP over the last four months. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> I had it easy. Um, <laughs> you know, there weren't, there weren't any tents on Henry's lawn. I was like, oh, my God. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, absolutely. I think, oh, God, nobody deserves that. Um 
So there are some similarities. 18 mm -hmm. months, potentially, to an election. Um, coming in midterm is never easy. If you look back through British politics, never mind Scottish politics over the years, um, with the exception of Nicola in the autumn of 2014, which is a, um, you know, a, maybe a unique set of circumstances um, in the 2015 general election, and uh, Boris Johnson, um, again, a unique set of circumstances, really, in the post-Brexit environment um, of 2019. You know, people who come in mid-term tend to lose elections. Uh, Jim Callaghan, Gordon Brown, uh, there's my whole, um, Alex Douglas Hume back in 64, a whole series of people over the years in British politics. Um, it's very hard if you go into the top job to set out your own stall in 18 months and make enough of an impact, whereas the opposition leaders got loads of time to prepare for it. Um, and I was given, I mean, Andy worked for David McCletchie. Um, you know, I was given a really tough time by David McCletchie and, um, and even by John Swinney back in 2003, because it was all about the record of 99 to 2003 that I had been a player in, but not completely in charge of. And I was trying to get the agenda onto what could happen in 2003 to 2007. Um, so Holmes is going to face the same challenge uh, and uh, I don't think it's going to be easy for him at all. We have got so much more to come with Jack McConnell, former First Minister of Scotland, including what it was like to lose the election in 2007 and his memories of that campaign. Plus, we'll be asking him about his ideas for decentralising democracy in Scotland. Stay with us, we'll be right back. And bear in mind, if you want to get rid of these ads, you can press subscribe at the top of your podcast feed. By paying four ninety nine a month, you're supporting the podcast. We don't make any money from it. It's so we can invest into the podcast and make it bigger and better. So if you want to do that and get an ad-free experience, then feel free. Otherwise, talk to you in about two minutes. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here at Hollywood Sources, we're always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So, we've been tapping up our sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. Well, it seems their story checks out. Bossman56 says, Just spent three days at The Resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel was clean and tidy. Staff were very friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, because we can't just go with one, can we? How about this from Gufton? The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It makes us proud to be supported by the resident on Holyrood Sources. You can join the resident online at residenthotels.com. Hamza, I think from my perspective, if I was advising, has to... Uh, really present who he is and what he stands for uh, and do it with a bit of conviction. And I think that's been kind of lacking. And I, and I read a really interesting article in the Sunday Times, Keenan Andrews wrote it up. He said, look, you know, Hamza softly kind of uh, reneging or distancing himself from a lot of the policy uh, challenges that he, were, he inherited. Now, my point is, if you're going to do that, do it with conviction, make a point of it, get up on a a podium and say, look, this is who I am. I'm stopping this. I'm taking, uh, I'm delaying that. And then I'm going to get move on to things that I want to do. So you get some credit for it. And, mm -hmm. and I suppose my question to you is, you know, what advice would you give to Hamza 
in this circumstance, given that you've had this very similar experience of coming in mid-term, challenging policy environment, you had a, a UK Labour Party that was mired in, in Iraq and the cash for honours and all the rest of it, and you were trying to uh, create a bit of distance, a bit of independence from that. What would your advice be to, to Hamza? What, what does he need to do in the coming weeks and months to really establish himself as First Minister? Well, um, at the risk of, uh, of, of annoying all my good friends in the Scottish Labour Party in particular, and as, um, who's a very good friend and I think would be a terrific First Minister, um, uh, if I had any advice uh, for Humza, it would be, uh, it would kind of be as you say. I had a conversation with, um, with Tony Blair, actually, three months before the 2003 election. Um, I, I had been in the position of First Minister for about 15 months at that point. I thought we were doing some really interesting things, but struggling to break through. Uh, the polls were not really um, uh, seeing a, a gap between ourselves and um, what was then John Swinney's SNP and David McCletchie was a ferocious opponent in the in the Conservatives. Um, and I was really worried about the 2003 election. I, I, I could see that um, you know this could be uh, uh, perhaps unexpected, but but a serious knockback for the Scottish Labour Party. And uh, interestingly, I spoke to, to, to Tony about it and he said, you know, what if you're the leader, what you need to do is, and the preparations for an election campaign, by all means, listen to everybody else and take all their advice. But at some point, you have to sit down on your own and just make decisions about what you stand for and what the party is then going to stand for and then go out and campaign on that. Because if you don't believe it, um, and it's not in your heart, uh, and you haven't found the right way to articulate it, then you're not going to uh, you're not going to succeed. And um, that was in February two thousand and three, um, and I, I did exactly that. You know, I, I, I remember the day that I wrote the introduction to the manifesto myself. One of the few things, just from blank piece of paper, wrote the thing out myself. It was described by a friend as the clearest description of what I personally stood for that I had, uh, I had ever written. Um, I went into the campaign, I ignored all the advice to talk about the record and what we'd achieved over the previous four years and talked almost solely about what I wanted to do over the next four years as me as First Minister with my team. And uh, and, and ultimately we were successful. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the critical thing. If you're going to be First Minister, and in particular if you're going to win an election as, as leader, you have to be your own person and you have to know what you stand for and you have to articulate that and people have to believe that you've got a vision for the country for the following four or five years that they can... Do you know, it was, it's really interesting thinking back to that time when I um, was working for McCletchie. Who, I, I, I loved working for David and I think I'm right in saying, Jack, you and David had a pretty good relationship, actually. We did um, a lot of charity, a lot of charity yeah, golf work together, actually. A lot, of charity, yeah. a lot of charity golf work, a lot of golf work generally, I think. You know, actually, David, I, I hugely missed a uh, figure in Scottish yeah. politics, actually. But I think the interesting thing was, looking back to then, David was very influential in uh, the resignation of Henry McLeish. Um, he really got the bit between his teeth. As Jack says, you know, in today's a vision of what expensive scandals are. That was like, you know, 200 words on page 74. Like, it was absolutely nothing. But anyway, in those days, it was a thing, and what happened, happened. And David was very influential in that. He is, He's very forensic. He was a lawyer, very forensic interrogator, and just made Henry, Henry's life a misery, to be honest with you. And I think probably... Um, because John was leader of the SNP at that point, and as massive a figure as John is, those were not John Swinney's favourite years when he was leader. Um, and you know the SNP were not doing well at that point, and had I think one of you know a, a very poor result. Um, uh, it's particularly in the two thousand and four European election, not often remembered, but one of the worst SNP results there was. So not having a good time. And, and I think McCletchie generally felt like he could really do something. The problem was when Jack came in, it was just much more difficult because there was just a sort of calm figure of competence. And although David was gave you a pretty tough time with First Minister's questions, what was quickly becoming clear was that the country saw you as being somebody who was very competent and who they could vote for. And actually, although David was doing well inside the building, out in the country, the Tories were doing nothing. Um, it was one of the clearest... Uh, and most succinct Tory man. It was the best Tory manifesto there has been in devolution 
that 2003 manifesto, mm. a very clear, very consistent, very coherent centre-right ideology manifesto, the only one there's been for a long time in the Tory party. And of course, it did absolutely nothing. It was just a core vote election yeah. for the Tories at that point. And I think looking back, you know, looking back now, the 2003 result, I think, was actually pretty obvious, although we might not have seen it at the time. I think it was, um, you know, it was, it, there, were two th there were two things that I, I particularly wanted to deal with in that election campaign. And again, there might be lessons here for, for, for Humza because he's got negatives to deal with as well as positives to try and find. Um, and on the negative side, I was very conscious that the uh, cost and the delay in the parliament building um, was a big uh, a plus for uh, for our opponents, um, and that you know, regardless of any role I hadn't played in the initial decisions on that, that led us to where we got to. Um, uh, that you know, I was still going to be seen as partly to blame for for what had happened, and um, you know, I had a I had a very good close friendship with Margot Macdonald, who by that point had left the SNP. Or had been kicked out. I can't remember exactly, but she, um, uh, Margot, had been alongside David McCletchy, the leading campaigner against the Parliament building's uh, escalating costs, and she wanted a public inquiry. And I decided the way to deal with this was for her to call for that at the beginning of the election campaign, and for me to say yes, um, and that would be it dealt with for the, mm. the last three weeks of the campaign. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and it was it was a way of getting a negative dealt with at the very beginning of the campaign. Um, and the other thing was I wanted to convey that, um, that I think I, I thought there was a general perception in Scotland, and, and I still believe that this was the case, um, that they had got this, Scotland had got this parliament, but they didn't, people didn't feel that the politicians were on their side. They felt that politicians had filled the building with themselves um, and had got a bit out of touch. And I wanted to convey the fact that as a first minister, my purpose in life was to be on their side. That was why I was in politics. That was what I wanted to do, to be on the side of the people. And we, we caught on the issue of uh, crime and antisocial behaviour, which was a real problem across um, Scottish communities. And we just decided that that was the, that was the issue um, that we could be in touch with and that um, it would demonstrate that I was on the side of the people against you know whatever authorities were not dealing with their problems. And um, and we campaigned on that pretty much every second day for the whole three weeks. Mm. Um, and I think that was what saved us um, from an embarrassing defeat. Uh, so uh, that, that was partly about recognising what it is in your personality that you might manage to convey over and above the competence that Andy talked about, but also dealing with a negative early on and not letting that dominate the campaign. Yeah. So any advice for Hamza? Those are the two things he needs to think about. Out of interest, Jack, it's it's good to good to kind of get this this sort of advice on the podcast. Do you do you keep in touch with first ministers, either present or former? I like the idea of you all being in a WhatsApp group together in some ways. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Fine. Just Listen, thought I'd check. I'm not. I'm not, that would not entirely sure. Terrible idea. That would be just an awful idea. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that the two former SNP first ministers are on a WhatsApp group together either. <laughs> oh boy! Um, they were uh, well. Uh, um, oh, what, what did I say about that? I mean, I, I did. Thing is, I, a table I, table for two. I think is what we're saying. Is it? Interestingly, I did get an email from Henry um, a couple of weeks ago in response to new initiative by Reform Scotland to to have a debate on decentralisation in Scotland. Henry's keen to get involved in that. So we had an exchange, first time for a wee while, so that was nice. Nice. Um, um, I used to actually talk to Nicola quite often. Um, you know, uh, we had quite a quite a, a decent working relationship. Um, uh, actually, even back when I was First Minister and she was effectively leader of the opposition in the parliament because um, Alex Salmon was, was still in London. Um, and we would talk occasionally, you know, I briefed her occasionally, confidentially. Um, and when she became First Minister, we would speak occasionally. She was very kind to me around about the announcement of the um, Scotland winning the Commonwealth Games for Glasgow back in 2007, um, both in the chamber and at the, the day of the announcement in uh, Glasgow. She invited me very much to be part of the... Um, 
the announcement and and thank me for all that we'd done to to, to make that a success. So I you know I, 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 her and I had a good relationship. It kind of fell apart a bit during COVID. Mm. Um, I was very critical of the school closures during COVID, mm-hmm. and as we all know, Nicola's not that keen on criticism. Um, and I think so. I think that's why things have gone a bit quiet on that score. But um, uh, I'm always happy to talk to any of them, but of I wouldn't want to be in a WhatsApp group with them. <laughs> Imagine the memes. Goodness me! That would drive me crazy. <laughs> uh, we've talked a lot about um, your own electoral successes. Uh, we must turn to the 2007 Scottish election at this point because I think Jeff wants to uh, Jeff wants to have a word. Which it's worth saying that you were you you were re-elected <laughs> as an MSP in that election, but the Labour Party was defeated by Jeff Aberdeen's SNP. Mm. <laughs> My SNP, it was all me. Uh, just a couple of things to, to recap. It was a really fascinating discussion, but just to pick up on the charity golf thing. When Andy and I played golf. Uh, before he's also very charitable to me because he's never beat me uh, yet. So that's encouraging. Um, Still give you a shot at home. Uh, but also, Andy mentioned the 2004 Euro uh, elections. And actually, if my memory serves correctly, that was in June 2004. And I, I, that was what really kick started Alex Salmond into saying, I'm going to come back. Uh, uh, and he, I think he announced his candidacy in July after having seen he would not be standing for it. Uh, and I worked as a, you know, a couple, I was at university at the time, but a couple of days a week I was up working at the Peterhead constituency office uh, and remember it well. And it, it, it was, it, I think people think, you know, that was the breakthrough election for the SNP, but it was a very challenging uh, election campaign. And I'll tell you, honestly, we didn't think we were going to win. Um, a lot, there was a few polls. I remember a big one in the Scotland on Sunday suggested we would a few months before the election. But we thought genuinely that we'd probably come up short. And even on the election night, for those who remember it, um, uh, we had thought we'd come up uh, short. But I suppose my question for you, Jack, is I remember the STV debate. Uh, it was done in Glasgow, the first one. And you actually performed, and this is not in any way patronised, I thought you performed really well in that. But the audience reaction had this sense of scunner factor to it. Anything you said was not really particularly well received, even though it was actually a very good response. And I remember that moment thinking to myself, I think we've got a chance here. And and I do think, as I said earlier, uh, a lot of your ills was actually more at Westminster uh, rather than uh, at Holyrood, if I'm being honest, particularly the the Iraq war for Ori and the, the cash for honours I mentioned earlier. At what point did you think, I tell you what, we're in trouble here? Um, and the reason I ask this is, I, I change my mind in, in each passing day just now. I, I kind of feel that we're in a, a similar potential cycle with the SNP leading into this general election as well. And I just wonder if you've got any observations on that. And do you have that same sense that there is something potentially quite seismic about to happen in, in, in Scottish politics, whether it be at Westminster or indeed Holyrood? Oh, boy, I could fill a whole podcast with this. Um, <laughs> uh I'm, I'm twitching at the memory here. <laughs> uh, not a happy time. Um, well, I, you know, I think it was it, it was clear to me months out that we had a problem, um, and uh, and that was uh, you know, and 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 I was quite affected by that in terms of frustration because it had actually been going quite well. Um, um, you know, Alec Salmond had taken over from John Swinney in, in, in the autumn of 2004 and come back. Um, in, the, in the autumn of 2005, there was a by-election in Glasgow Cathcart following the resignation of Mike Watson. And uh, we won that by-election and it was actually the best Labour performance in a by-election in any parliament in the UK at any level. Um, during the time of Tony Blair's prime ministership, um, so we actually thought that we had Alec in a box, and we were, you know, uh, we were winning at that point. And also, we were doing some quite interesting, creative things in the Scottish government, and they were getting, they were getting, uh, getting traction and support from from the public. Um, and then two thousand and six happened, and we had uh, yet yeah, the, the the collapse of the situation in Iraq, um, uh, which following Charlie Kennedy's death became Alex's issue at, uh, at Westminster. And previous to that, he'd been a bit overshadowed by Charlie Kennedy, but he then became the dominant um, opponent of the war um, on the national TV screens. We had um, 
the cash for honours scandal, um, which was a, a bit trivial, but but affected the impression of Labour in government maybe for too long. Things getting a bit uh, a bit ropey at the edges. Um, and, and, a, and a couple of other things that happened towards the end of Tony's premiership um, that meant the, the political focus moved from Scotland to, to, to Westminster, where Alec was. So Nicola and I were battling out every week in Edinburgh, but actually the main TV coverage was all happening down south and he was there and I wasn't there. Um, and, and the politics of Scotland shifted in 2006. And by the end of 2006, I was quite uh, concerned. And there was actually a poll at the start of the election campaign in 2007, I think maybe the first week of April. I think it was in the Daily Mail that had the SNP, I think it was 11% ahead of us. Um, bit of a rogue poll, but that sort of thing at the beginning of an election campaign terrifies the life out of you, I can tell you. And it was followed by that STV debate. And I remember it very well. It was so negative and angry. It was like an angry crowd in a town hall meeting. Um, who, as you say, were not listening to anything I said and were just wanting to be angry and and shout at me. Um, and that, you know, that was pretty much the pattern of the election campaign. It changed a bit in the last week. You know, we we got close about ten days to go. It was neck and neck. Um, and then there was a BBC debate, which I think went quite well for me in the um, in Aberdeen, if I remember rightly. Um, yes. Beginning of the, of the, of the maybe the Sunday night of the last week where I gave Alec quite a hard time for having gone off to Westminster in the early days of the Scottish Parliament um, and sort of run away while I was there trying to sort out the problems. And he was a bit under a bit of pressure. And then we had another bad STV debate on the uh, uh, that week, a couple of nights later. Um, and uh, on, and then on the day, obviously, it was neck and neck right to the very, the very last seat, the very last 24 votes and from the Isle of Arran, my own home constituency. Voting um, SNP by forty-eight votes, and uh, um, and and we lost by one seat, um, and uh, you know that was that was quite a day. I don't, I tell you, it's not a. This is not a history lesson. I'm just fascinated by this because if we remember, you know, if that had fallen the other way, okay, the SNP would have been in the ascendancy, no doubt, because yeah. they'd have run Labour so close, but potentially. Uh, Jack, and perhaps you can clarify, the SNP wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily have taken government. Uh, and that really did change the course of Scottish political history, because that led to the 2011 result, which led to the referendum, and it was mm -hmm. quite an extraordinary yeah. period. So it's, it really was... Votes. Absolutely. It really I mean, was, was all this stuff about the, votes for such a seismic moment. Absolutely. There was all this stuff about the electronic voting. I don't know if you remember that, but the, the, the um, Scotland office had brought in electronic voting for the election, and... Uh, and it was a car crash, and 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 there was a big complicated ballot paper, and people, a lot of people spoiled their papers, and there was a lot of pressure on me internally to challenge the result legally, but I felt there was a kind of moment in time, and when you lose an election, even narrowly, I do, I I do feel you have to accept the result, and uh, um, but yeah, if it gone fifty votes the other way, then. Uh, then it might have been it might have been a, a, a very interesting few years. Although I'm not sure that would have been a very a very uh, pleasant way to spend your time as first minister with um, yeah. a very narrow victory and uh, and and you know potentially you know a strong opposition breathing down your neck every day. I'm I'm laughing because as you two were battling it out to decide who got to sit in Butte House, I'd actually already resigned. <laughs> we were not at the races for that. I had resigned um, about six weeks before the election, but I had agreed that we wouldn't tell anybody in case it was embarrassing that the head of comms resigned during the election campaign. Um, and I was away the next day, gone off to out of politics and off to new things. So as you two were deciding who was going to run the country, I was just looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, that was that, that was quite a ten-day period, really, because there was a there was a gap between the election because of the Scottish Parliament and the fact that you have to think about actually electing a first minister in the Parliament, mm. and it's a bit different from Westminster, where the you know the Queen invites the winner, and mm. the or the King invites the winner in the next day. Um, um, there was about a ten-day period, I think, between um, the election result and me leaving Butte House and Alec moving in, and. Uh, that was a pretty painful 10 days, I have to say. Really? And the day itself, you know, having had 10 days to think about it, was, oh, 
boy. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but, you know, that's life. You win some, you lose some. And, uh, you know, the debates we had then seem to be still going on today. So there you go. Um, Jack, we must ask you as well, you mentioned a few moments ago decentralisation, um, which has become a bit of a, a theme for you, a bit of a campaign for you, I suppose, in some ways. What what do you mean by decentralisation? At, at what stage in, I suppose, the democratic structure of the UK and th- therefore Scotland, at what point in that structure do you mean that decentralisation is required? Well, one of the things that we have seen in Scotland since 1999 is the the decline in the strength of the local government voice. Um, In Scotland, when there wasn't a Scottish parliament, local government leaders were powerful. They were well-known names. They were... Uh, uh, they, many, many times they were the vocal opposition to the government of the day. Um, but remarkably, um, now well, nearly 25 years on, uh, we still have in place in Scotland the local government structure that was created in 1995 mm. by Ian Lang. So despite the fact that local government is totally autonomous to the Scottish Parliament, it, Scottish Parliament can do whatever it likes with the structure of local government and the financing of local government and so on in Scotland, there's been no radical uh, look at this uh, by any administration um, in the 24 years that the parliament has been in place. And I I think what we've seen over the years has been a decline in the local voices, uh, some increasing centralisation, the creation of Scottish agencies, um, pulling in power from the Highlands and from elsewhere uh, to, to Edinburgh over that time. And I would like to see us have a, a very open debate about how do we reinvigorate uh, local government in Scotland and make it part of the, the solution, part of the energy of Scotland, rather than, uh, than, than something that's just become part of the decline. So um, Reform Scotland, which is a policy think tank that I chair, um, I'm not involved in the detail of how, what they organise because it's a, a non-party organisation. Um, but Reform Scotland have launched this debate on their website, uh, they're kicking it off with articles from in- interesting uh, figures over the coming weeks, and we're looking for big ideas. Do people want, for example, you know, the equivalent of elected mayors in Scotland, leaders of cities that would stand up and stand out, um, or do do they want a different system of local government finance? Um, you know, uh, Jeff and the SNP promised in 2007 to abolish the council tax. That's never happened. Uh, but what would we replace it with? If, if we're going to have a better system of local government finance in Scotland that had more accountability locally, how could we how could we go about that? And other powers that we should um, should devolve to local government away from Holyrood to share the power across the country rather than have it all concentrated in in one place. So this is a big debate, I think, and you know it's been it's been great to see the reaction so far. I've had so many uh, comments coming in, and I know that Reform Scotland have had offers of articles and. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it takes off. Yeah. Jack, do you think that, um, and I suppose I should declare that Message Matters does the PR for Reform Scotland, so just before anybody <laughs> anybody apps me on Twitter, I know. We're, all, we're um, in a new era of transparency on this podcast, yes, Jack. Indeed. We're going to be independently audited at some point, so we're just preparing. Oh exactly. Um, Jack, where do you think this sits with the debate on devolution from Westminster to Holyrood? Is this... Is this almost a replacement for the focus on that debate, or do you think it's a fluid situation where we need to look at Westminster to Holyrood and Holyrood to local authorities at the same time? I think they're two different debates, um, to be honest. I think the the debate will go on about Scotland's relationship to the UK, and that's a, that's one debate. But I think there is, a, in some ways, because of the dominance of that debate over the last maybe, what, um, 20 years, really, since the early years of the Parliament, that debate has obviously become very prominent and 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 continues to dominate a lot of uh, public life in Scotland. We've not had the debate on local government, and we need. We, no, we cannot, as a country, have such weak local government structures and such a lack of voice for local government leaders. You know, you, we talked earlier on in this podcast about the northeast and the importance of the northeast to the Scottish and the British economy. You know, voices from the northeast used to dominate. Um, uh, debates on, on local government in Scotland. The Scotland cities should have strong leaders that are known uh, internationally, not just uh, nationally. And our local councils should have the power uh, to innovate and to finance projects. I mean, you go around Scotland today and our public, our kind of civic infrastructure is awful. 
I was in a town last week at a funeral and I was appalled by the state of it. And, uh, you know, I think, and we see that all over the country. So we need to empower our local leaders, give them status, give them finance and responsibility. Um, and then I think that will be healthier for Scotland. Um, controlling and centralising everything doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work anywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a real potential here for us to do something exciting. Yeah. Do it in Scotland. Yeah, I... I... <clears throat> I, I, we're in danger of agreeing with it, with each other again. I mean, I, I do agree with that, and you do worry about the wonder about the, you know, current public policy landscape. You know, mm -hmm. ha, had you had a a, a mayor or a much more uh, status-driven leader in uh, the Highlands, would we have seen you know uh, highly protected marine areas, for example, advance? Yeah. You you do wonder, don't you? And and, and think that perhaps that would have nipped it in the bud. Uh, so I, I certainly think there's a case, but I suppose my one challenge is this, um, you know, there, there would be a perception with maybe that that would be mean an added layer of bureaucracy. And and suppose how do we kind of deal with that, that accusation? And also, do you think, Jan, it's just an open question. I'm not sure I've got a, a defined position that we have too many local authorities in Scotland, you know, 32 local authorities for a country of five and a half million people. Is there a way that this reform of, of improving the status of uh, our local communities and cities, uh, whilst also trying to rationalise somewhat the, the, the local authority uh, system, is that something that would be looked at as part of this process? I mean, frankly, Jeff, it is absolutely unbelievable that we have gone, and it's now 1993 was the white paper uh, from Ian Lang on the reform of Scottish local government. It's 30 years since the 32 council system was set up, going from the smallest authorities almost anywhere in Clackmannan and Murray and East Renfrewshire um, to uh, whole cities, sometimes with a bit uneven boundaries um, in, in Scotland. Um, you know, it might be the right system. But in 30 years, surely we should have at least debated that. Um, you know, do we need to accept the fact that some authorities are going to be big and some are going to be small? How do we structure local government finance to deal with that? Do, do we need to, to look at perhaps the number of authorities and have fewer um, so that we can uh, we can get some efficiencies alongside maybe more services and more decentralisation? Um, and how do we get the leaders uh, that can be on a on a par with our parliamentarians? I mean, I know that we've got a bit of a problem at Holyrood just now, um, and that you know a lot of people would struggle to name a lot of MSPs. Um, but uh, there is still a feeling that parliamentarians in Holyrood um, are in some way superior to the the leaders of our of even our large local authorities, and that's not acceptable. You know, when I was a when I was um, leader of Stirling District Council back in 1990, we were a small district authority with just district authority responsibilities. I was on a TV about once a month. Mm. You know, I mean, I was a pretty well-known figure in the Scottish Labour Party hierarchy of running a fairly small local authority uh, because I had voice and, and I, I, we were doing things that were interesting and controversial, um, even in times of, of, of financial difficulty. And... That's what I would want to see in Scottish local government today. I want to see people doing things that are innovative and creative, um, setting a standard, making others want to follow them, uh, doing things that pe make people feel jealous and therefore they want to keep up with that standard. And there and there's, feels like there's very little of that going on. And um, that's why we need to have this debate. Yeah, very good. It's a really interesting debate to have. I just want to put one final thought to you, Jack, because I want to just test a theory that I heard from Craig Oliver, um, who was Director of Communications to David Cameron. That WhatsApp idea again. <laughs> I'm just determined. It'll happen Don't one day. <laughs> uh, he was Director of Communications to David Cameron at number 10. And I remember yeah. him saying not long ago that, that people who became leaders, became Prime Ministers and by extension First Ministers, had this built-in drive that they wanted to be able to declare victory over something. They wanted a kind of Churchill moment. Do you consider that you were able to declare victory over something? And what is it if there is something for you? Wow. Um, I am very, very proud of Fresh Talent. Mm. Um, you know, we changed... Uh, we didn't just change the system and reverse population decline... Um, but we won public support for it at a time when politicians were running away from 
any kind of positive approach to in-migration right across Western Europe. Um, so I am very proud of that. That was about the psychology of the nation as well as about a good policy. But obviously, in terms of legislation, the thing that's probably had the single biggest impact was the ban on smoking in, in public places. Um, and that's an interesting one, because I was um, I, I was opposed to that when we launched the consultation, mm. and I was persuaded. Um, so sometimes you have your big moment because you give in, and you and you realise that somebody else's argument's better than yours, and you do the right thing. Um, and that was a risk, uh, uh, but it was one that was well worth taking. Brilliant. That's really interesting. Really interesting to test that theory. Thank you very much. Uh, Jack, thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. Cheers. Good to talk to you all. Really good to speak to you. Uh, Andy Thanks, and sir. Jeff, thank you as well. All the best. Thank you, thank you. Uh, this is Hollywood Sources. Make sure you follow and subscribe. We drop into your podcast feed every single week. Uh, you don't get analysis like this anywhere else, and you get access to people like Jack McConnell, former First Minister of Scotland, who's joined us today. I might even sign up. <laughs> 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 hey, we'll take your four ninety nine a month, McConnell. No problem. You can email us anytime. Email your thoughts on what you've just heard. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com, and we will speak to you next week. 